Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the latest in our series of isolation podcasts in association with Box Brewery. This one is dedicated to the newest installment of the We Saw You Cry on Netflix piss take documentary, Sunderland Till I Die Season 2. I'm your host, Craig, and joining me through however long this is going to take is Gav. How are you doing, mate? How's social distancing treating you? Not bad. The sun's out in it. So, <laughs> I mean, I know we're not meant to leave the house, but the garden's all right, and surely. That's There's no creepy crawlies in the garden. I think, we'll, uh, I think we'll persevere. I think we'll be all right. So as per this podcast, this is specifically designed to review, give a spoiler special, uh, update, if you like, on The Sun Until I Die, season two, that returns to Netflix. Uh, season two gives access to the club during the 2018-19 season with new owners and a new manager. And the whole show is essentially about the club looking to reinvent themselves and gain promotion from League One. Uh, our friends over at Fullwell 73 were kind enough to give us an advanced screening. Gavin, I know you've seen this back a few times now, but what were your initial thoughts after your first viewing? A little similar to the first series, really, I came away from it feeling not necessarily completely deflated because obviously ultimately we know what happens. The season didn't end how we all wanted, but more so just the fans came across really well and the distraction from the mentalness of what was going on in the boardroom and off the pitch. You've always got the supporters there who they do follow the same sort of characters from the first series and they're the ones who really, I think, put the club in a good light because, you know, regardless of how the club's doing on the pitch, the fans sort of show themselves in, in, a, in a fantastic light and ultimately I hope that's what people come away from after watching it thinking is that even if they're not Sun and fans you can see what the club's all about definitely yeah. I think maybe for me one of the best things that season one and, and certainly season two continues with is it's centering the experience as you mentioned around the people who love the club and it really just drives home how all of our relationships with Sunderland in, in recent years has been you know, largely defined by crisis and dysfunction and, and, and an awful mm. lot of misery, unfortunately. But it does really drive home the message of what the club represents to the city. Yeah. Now, although season two continues with that theme, it is often put to the backseat a little bit, if you like, as we go from the permatant Martin Bain to the pure PR force of nature that is Charlie Methvin. Mm. That really does take centre stage, I suppose, at some point. I would just say to any of our listeners, before we, we really kind of drive into this, is a little disclaimer. Like I said, we are reviewing this ahead of its release so I do recommend if, if any of our listeners are yet to see any of season two so far and you don't want to know any of the major incidents that do take place I'd say please go uh, watch the show then then come back to us and give us a listen like I said beforehand the first season and, and certainly with with this now how it continues the access is far reaching and the story does generate is real there's no in-house promo we're told that the club had absolutely no editorial control so so what you see really is 
is what you get. Um, and just kind of watching it back now, I, I watched it back for the second time this morning. I mean, it's a kind of a joke, if you like. One of the most encouraging things for me is after first viewing is that we don't see any fans squaring up to Jack Ross, like that <laughs> incredible scene in season one involving Chris Coleman. And we don't see any players getting pissed up on camera like we did with Darren Gibson twice. But there's a lot of drama to soak up. So we'll uh, we'll go through that now. So we'd mentioned Charlie Methvin already. Um, throughout the show, you're going to see Charlie in every episode. He's clad in his pastel shirts and his pink chinos and his hair's flopping around like a, a hybrid of like Michael McIntyre slash Lord Forquad from Shrek. He <laughs> talks a bit like Bob Mortimer's train guy, but he routinely reminds us at just how bad Sunderland are at being a big football club. And he really does kind of drive that home for staff. So after the opening recap of season two, it gives us a, a, a little highlight reel of the Sunderland-Burton game. And then we moves on to a scene of summer 2018. And that scene sets the tone for the rest of the show. It's subtly underpinning the, the friction behind the scenes. So it begins with Charlie outlining the finances of the club. There were some certainly TV notable quotes there mentioning that the business was planning to lose 30 to 40 million pounds a year. He goes on to describe that as a failed, fucked up business. And he tells the staff, unless you guys understand that, they'll never make it in this world. It was a fucked up business, 100%. And it was on track to becoming the first large club to, to ever go properly bust. So Kind of just off the back of that, I would say, what do you think of the show's introduction? Because it's a sharp contrast to the opening scene, which took place in the church in season one. The, the staff look a little on edge. And I mean, when the camera pans to Louise Wanless, bless her, her discomfort, it really leaps off the screen. Yeah, pretty much every time Charlie's in a meeting with his staff, to be honest, <laughs> throughout the series, you get that feeling, don't you, that his staff are a little bit intimidated by him and, and just how, I don't know, how big a personality is, I guess, and how driven and motivated he is. He is I think Louise Wanless talks about him in maybe the third episode and she, yeah. she describes him as a whirlwind and you get that impression with the staff. They just don't know what to make of him. They don't want to say anything unless it puts him into bother. And he actually at one point asks to be challenged on his point in the first episode when he's when he's sat with all his staff in a room talking mm -hmm. about the music, which I'm sure will come on to. Um, he, asks, he asks to be challenged on that point because he's just waiting for somebody to like butt in and, you know, create a debate and that's sort of something that's pinpointed later on in the series where they're just not happy with the fact the staff don't seem to be too self-motivated and sort of on the same page as, as they are but then they also recognise that these are staff members who came through under Ellis Short and have seen the club decline and waste a lot of money and they're sort of badly burnt from that experience a bit like the fans and the players were just the same the, the, the staff off the pitch have had to endure all of that so yeah I mean, it, it kind of does drive it home early, just how business-centric the new owners are. They're just the first and foremost, they want to get the business back on track. And I guess I come away from it a little bit more sympathetic than I did going in. I know I knew a lot of this stuff anyways, watching some of the work that they did to try and just hit a series of milestones early on into their tenure. It's interesting, not, not only interesting, but it's, I, I guess, yeah, they deserve a little bit of credit for being aggressive with it because I think they had to be clearly although he is you know often kind of perceived as a bit of a dislikable bloke i've never kind of hid from the the debate to say that i'm, I'm not overly keen on charlie I, I think you bang on in terms of the message that he does look to instill but do you, do you feel that maybe the delivery wasn't suited uh, when he first comes on screen and you, like you said he, he is a bit of a presence i don't know i, I get this feeling that he's He's more better suited in perhaps like a, like an office environment, you know, training people in like high pressure sales, just thriving on, on that yeah. sort of thing. Like, like a poor man's Wolf of Wall Street, if you like. He's um, 
I, I don't know. I just don't think he was was ever kind of fit for that sort of environment. I've, I've been in Black Cat's house so many times now when it's just going for tickets and things like that. And you're right, it is a bit of a sleepy culture. And I'm not sure if that's just been like that forever and we've never really kind of understood and appreciated that but you know he does really go into kind of challenge that and I think a lot of people were obviously frightened hence mm. the reason why there is just so much anxiety from the staff when he's on scene but uh crazy he calls himself the big picture guy doesn't he, he says he that does. Stuart looks one for big ideas although I hate that sort of terminology like it's a bit yeah it's not it's a bit not us isn't it but he's right I guess he, that's that is the impression you get of Charlie all the way through obviously what you don't see in the series and I think that's probably my main gripe of the series is just how packed together it is. It could have done with a few more episodes. So what you watch and kind of makes it look like he's there every day. On yeah. the, you know what I mean? I know that we know that he wasn't. He was there when he could be, but when he was there, he, he got stuff done. And maybe that was the problem with the club last season is that there wasn't somebody, well, I know there wasn't. It's the same problem we've got now. There's just nobody of that sort of seniority walking around the club every day keeping on top of people, holding meetings, making sure senior staff are all on the same page, that people are driven and motivated. We know that doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen now because, I mean, Charlie's not there anymore, obviously. But even when he was there, he wasn't there every day. But yeah, I think he is the centrepiece of the whole series. I mean, there's there's lots of little tangents and stories that it goes off. But generally, he's, he's the one on camera the most. He dominates the camera. And I think people are going to... I think you have to let people make their own judgment on Charlie on, on the back of it. But you can't, whatever you think of him as a person and the way he comes across and, he's, and the way maybe he talks to people, you can't deny that he poured his heart and soul into it. I think that's pretty clear to see that he was very driven to try and make a success of it. And that does shine through. Absolutely. Yeah, I, to be honest, I don't think anybody can disagree with that. The, uh, the feel-good factor when both of them initially came in, I mean, like I said, in the opening montage there, when they, they do the recap of the Burton game and then move on to the new ownership, it does refocus on that point of the message waves and, you know, the piss-taking party ends here. And for a while, you know, everything was was great, at least in the earlier months. And then, granted, we know how it all unfolded. But um, at least I think it documents that quite well in terms mm. of the, the connectivity, once again, with the fans. And, and that does really um, transcend well in later episodes. So after, uh, again, it's kind of fully montage-laden, these uh, these episodes. So we we have the bit, again, where there's the religious undertone, where Charlie's telling people it stops people crying in church. I mean, I'm not sure. I really think Fullwell 73 are perhaps overestimating just how religious a place Sunderland is. It's always <laughs> kind of get mentioned. But after, you know, kind of bits and bobs, and then moves on to Jack Ross, describes him as the PFA Scotland Manager of the Year, um, and obviously highlights that one of the first tasks of basically his, you know, kind of regime, his time in charge now is to basically rebuild a team, which he describes that he wants it built on his own ethos. Now, you touched on something earlier. You mentioned about how the show is quite compact. Now, I agree entirely with that because when you watch the eight episodes of season one, it all unfolds at quite a nice pace. But this one, it was, I felt it was quite crammed. And one of the things I really would have liked to have seen was was basically the recruitment process for appointing Jack Ross. Yeah. Because Stuart Donald mentioned a good few times, you know, how he was the number one candidate. And I mean, I'm, I still remain a big fan of Jack Ross, but I, I would have liked to have seen why exactly he was he was number one for them, whether there was any conflict in between, because, you know, as the show unfolds later on, you know, perhaps you get an understanding that maybe Charlie Methvin wasn't entirely happy with Jack Ross, but it would have been interesting to see maybe some of the earlier meetings. I think yeah. as well, not a criticism per se, but... I think sometimes people forget about the job that Jack Ross had when he initially came in. And one of the things I would have liked to have seen 
would have maybe been more of a mention of basically how difficult it was in terms of some of the players refusing to come back and train. I think it was Paddy McNair who said he wouldn't set foot in Sunderland. You, you see Lamine Coney walk back in. I genuinely forgot about him, actually. And he comes in with a with a basketball jersey on. He's got some beach shorts and flip-flops. And you just think, Jesus Christ, you know, mm. you, well, the, you're not going to cut us. The kind of breeze over pre-season, which was yeah. disappointing because that's, that's where the majority of the work was done. I mean, you do see... You see a couple of the players signing, you see Ross arriving, you see the seat change which was done in the summer, mm-hmm. but you don't see too much of it. And I think the majority of the work that they did was done in that couple of months. Yeah. And it would have been nice to maybe just see them more about how like say how they got rid of players, how they brought players in. But to be fair, the way the episode's structured, they're actually trying to push it along to get to that Charlton game, the first game yeah. of the season, which dominates the majority of the episode and obviously they only have so much time. But yeah, I mean, you could have done a full episode just on pre-season, really. But the pink seat stuff was interesting, wasn't it? Because, I mean, a lot of that footage actually was shown by the club, I think. I think yeah. a lot of that was captured by the club around the time, so I had seen some of it. Like the stuff of the, the guy who didn't have a clue. I mean, that's... Who look her name in hind, Well, in hindsight, that's brilliant, isn't it? Because, like, obviously, he's probably the most liked player we've got yeah. right now. That fella just didn't have a clue who he was. Yeah. For, for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, oh, nine's changing seats and there's a guy comes up to him and says, oh, you know, one, you should sign that because one day you could say, what's your name, Luke? Luke one, or you could say, what, uh, Luke 09 fitted this seat, you know, one day if you make it. And uh, oh, nine's just, like, dead nice, doesn't really, like, get big and too big for his boots with the, the bloke. But the bloke just hasn't got a clue who he is. I think it really does um, kind of drive home as well about Luke 09 when he first came up. And just, as you mentioned, what a nice guy he was. And there's a little snippet at the end of the episode where he mentions he just underestimated just how big Sunderland was and... and you know, I think he even alludes to how much he struggled in his in his first few months. But I'm not sure. I think the, the narrative that they wanted on perhaps Luke or Nine was maybe that they wanted him as the the Johnny Williams character, if you like, of season yeah. two, where he yeah. was going to be one of the main focal points and he was going to be a massive player of our season. Because I think when he first started and he played in centre midfield of that the opening day, we were all slightly underwhelmed, and then all of a sudden he, he gets put into right back a couple of months later. Then. You know, he's really made that spot his own, and, and like you mentioned, mm. he's he's now one of the key players at the club, isn't he? So it was, um, yeah, it was, it was nice to see that kind of resurrection. I know he'd only had a couple of months at the club, but it seemed like he he, he was going to be a bit of a disastrous sign, and so it was excellent. And like you said, that moment where the fella goes over, I mean, I'm not sure if he was just playing along, but it did genuinely seem that he just did not have a clue who he was. So. It wasn't. It wasn't the funniest part of the episode, though. I mean, we've got to talk about... I've got to ask you this, like, the this, the segment on the music. Obviously, people might not have watched this yet, mm-hmm. but there's a whole maybe five, ten minutes where Charlie presents his idea for changing the music in the ground to his key staff. And then a little bit later, he goes around the ground with Frankie Francis and tests out the PA system with his new brand of rave, Ibiza feel music, as he calls it. <laughs> what did you make of that? I found it quite cringeworthy to be honest. I thought it was something that you would see like on The Office, something like that, where yeah, like Michael Scott gathers everybody in the meeting room and goes from there. And it's quite funny because you're looking at people like Chris Waters, and Chris is such a nice guy that he just kind of smiles through everything. And regardless of whether he thinks an idea is not very good or not, he's he's just nodding and you know saying this, that, and the other. I think it was Oscar who kind of mentioned that he thought. Uh, Prokofiev dance the nights was a bit boring and a bit slow it was only Louise who had kind of put up the fight to go well you know this is going to resonate with uh, a lot of fans because this is what they know they they know dance of the nights but yeah essentially this entire scene is all about Charlie stood there with his laptop playing Tiesto through the speakers to <laughs> a bemused 
air pumping like he's in amnesia. And you're just thinking, Jesus Christ. I mean, I've spoke to a few people about this. So some of the elder generation of Sunderland fans, and they've just said it was awful when they would walk into the, the stadium of ice. 10 to 3 on a Saturday afternoon and they can barely hear because the PA system which Oscar mentions is is fairly poor so I don't know I just think he, he maybe got a massive kind of decision wrong with this one I, I personally was a big fan of Dance the Night but yeah um, when he's when he's kind of stood there and he's pitch side and he's going up to the seats it was just a bit uh, I don't know I, I just I can't quite describe it because I think it's going to be you need, TV people need to see it. Yeah, people need to see it, don't they? Like just for themselves, it's just it's quite funny. But <laughs> what I found funny afterwards is when the atmosphere is building for the game and Nick Barnes asks Gary Bennett what he thinks of it, and he's like, "Not, not my cup of tea." Yeah, nah. I, I made <laughs> straight away. And it's like you said, there is some real kind of genuine laugh out loud moments, and it really is towards the end of it, and it's when. They're doing that montage again, and Barnes has mentioned he's going, we've got new shirts, we've got new seats, we've got new music. And you could just see the look on Gary Bennett's face, and he was just like, no, not a chance. This is just <laughs> not, for, not for me. But I don't know. I mean, my personal take on that, with Charlie obviously not being at the club no more, I really hope he kind of revert back to what they previously had, uh, because it's just not my not my cup of tea on the music. But it's like going into like Everton and changing Z cars, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah it's absolutely. Like, it's not like Everton, have, I know in the 80s they had a fantastic team, but... For a long time, Everton haven't really won anything, but it's still their song, isn't it? And mm. you wouldn't dream of changing it. And I can understand his point. He makes a point where he's talking about it and he's saying, you know, we want a new sound, when you, we want to try and build the atmosphere when we're coming to the ground. But I just think that's modern football, isn't it? I just I don't think you... Unless you give free drink away before the game, you're not really going <laughs> to yeah. succeed in trying to build a loud atmosphere before a home game because yeah, that's just not how it works. I've always been a five to three rival, so whatever happens in the stadium in fairness, I miss the most of it pretty much. But yeah, anyway, just just kind of going a couple of steps back before you know they kind of move on to the Charlton game and, and after the recruitment bit. Brandy, the physio, obviously he's going through the the, the checks in terms of welcoming the uh, the players back. What, what did you think of the bit with Joel Osorio and Josh Madger? I mean, day one, the return late. The, the question where they've been and Josh Madger replies with we've been chilling at home and then you've got Jack ignorant in. Oh, it was terrible wasn't it was he? really ignorant I mean I don't Madger wasn't too wasn't as bad but even then they didn't even stand up you know Jack Ross is trying to be really enthusiastic and shaking their hands and stuff and like Asoro just seems really disinterested doesn't he and staring at the ground not much to say I don't know whether he's a kind of meek moody character anyways but mm-hmm. It just doesn't, they don't come across well. Like, and I think that's something that the owner touches on at some point, you know, where they've inherited all these players who have watched yeah. Premier League players come and go and see what money they're on and stuff. And regardless of the fact they weren't first team players during that time, I think they still have that mentality of being around players who maybe didn't want to be at Sunderland. And ultimately, it, it proved to be true because neither of them stayed very long, did they? So, no, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In terms, I mean, like I said, I keep using the word montage, but it just feels like it, it is just literally planted every five minutes or so. When they're discussing, you know, kind of bringing the players in and, and they've the shown the screen of new arrivals, the first one I obviously kind of had the glare and stare at was Charlie White. I mean, it actually discloses a feel there. I'll be honest, I was never, ever aware that we paid £900,000 for Charlie White. So that was a bit of an eye-opener. And then when they're kind of going mm. through some of the players, I mean, I'll be honest, the first impression I got of Jack Baldwin, he, he just looks mentally shattered before we've even kicked a ball. He's discussed kind of the struggles that he's had, Peter Brett. And although he mentions he was looking for a fresh start, he just, I don't know, there was, there was just something that you could tell from the offset. It just did not look like the right signing. 
I'm mm. not sure what your thoughts were on some of the, the kind of the, the the bits that were brought in. I, well, I pinpointed a lot of the players like like Baldwin, yeah. and and it had a couple of moments in later episodes, but it just kind of dropped it and left us. In terms of the players themselves, I think I've always maintained you have to have a certain bit of craziness in your character to succeed at something. I just think that's and that goes for managers and players, which is why I think O Nine's made a fist of it because you can tell he's a little bit mental, you know. Yeah. Whereas like with Baldwin, you you never. I mean, I know it's the second episode when you actually get to know him a bit better, but he he doesn't come across as somebody who I don't know. He never did on the pitch either. To be fair, as somebody who was a big character, and I, I was I was a little surprised that he was actually captain at Peterborough because does he come across as somebody who's brimming with charisma and? A leader. Um, nah, I, I feel I feel a little bit sorry for him. Actually, he just, he just seems like someone who just wants to get along with his work. But he admits himself that Sullen's maybe a bit too big for him, and it's the biggest yeah. opportunity you'll ever get. I was going to say it, it is quite a shame because I mean, while I thought the the first couple of episodes do is is a really kind of highlights on just how reinvigorated everything is around the club in terms of you know how invested the fans are again that we're getting crowds over thirty thousand and then subsequently get the forty six on Boxing Day and the players that we had were genuinely likable lads in terms of everyone who was brought in there, there wasn't anything in particular that you could you know really pinpoint a finger at and say I don't like him for X Y mm. and Z or they've come with a bad reputation so when you've got the likes of 09 I mean even even down to the the players who don't really feature on this documentary, the likes of your Reese James and people like that, they're all brought in essentially as part of a as a massive rebuild. And in terms of how it unfolded at the end, obviously, granted, we'll get there in perhaps a later episode, but it is a bit of a shame. And that's one thing I think that they could have fleshed out a little bit more. Like I said, in terms of six episodes, it did feel a little bit compressed because you've got really a five-second with Lee Catamall at the start of episode one, and that's kind of all you hear about him. And it's the same with yeah. 20 minutes as well. You think with the captain... And I thought as well, we're mentioning about characters. I mean, Max Power doesn't speak to anybody once. And you think in no. terms of some, some of the earlier things that we're seeing where, you know, they used to wind Donald Glove up on Instagram and all those sorts of yeah. videos. You think if they captured some of that, that, that really would have made for interesting viewing from, from yeah. other people outside. Well, but... I think that the manager and the players weren't keen on the cameras being there. Mm-hmm. That, that that was made clear after the first series with Honeyman talking about it. I think he was one of the ones saying like, we weren't really too happy about the cameras being in the dressing room and stuff, which is why I think that's why the, this this has a, a narrative this this series. But sort of the first one, and it was always it was about the fans because the fans are the most open you people you're gonna speak to. Um, had the players and the manager been more open, the cameras being around the dressing room, it would have been an entirely different sort of presentation. I think. Yeah. You don't get. I don't think you get any sort of dressing room footage at all, day Other than maybe a pre-season game, I'm not sure. There's not much, anyways. So it, yeah, I think I think if you're going to watching this one, knowing that basically in the first series it, it it was the same that sorry the players and the manager weren't really too interested in talking to the cameras. Yeah, you know what to expect then. You know it would have been nice to hear more from players collectively as well. There's a, there's quite a lot of one-on-one interviews, but not many where they're together like you say. And it would have been good to hear from people like Power and stuff. But yeah, that that first episode is ultimately about the Charlton game, isn't it? It's yeah, it's, it's yeah. about everything building into that one game. I mean, we'll just kind of wrap things up on episode one about that Charlton game in particular. But I mean, how how well did you think that they they done that? One of my big criticisms from season one was in terms of some of the match footage it was atrocious. You, you were watching us play, say, for example, at Brentford, but there would be bits of say Simon Grayson on the touchline as whole. And I think that's a massive improvement where they seem to have tightened that up. I, I didn't notice any sort of glaring mistakes and the footage does look a hell of a lot better. And I thought they really kind of encapsulated that Charlton game as, uh, I think Charlie describes it as the renaissance, the revival. And, mm. and, I mean, I remember 
you know, that day itself, early kickoff, it was red hot weather. And then to go and win it in the 95th, 96th minute, it really did feel like uh, like a bit of a rebirth. What, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, if you, you couldn't write it, could you? I remember at the time, obviously, it was the, the it, what they didn't, what what they could have probably done by focusing on. I know the the sort of do by mentioning the amount of players that were injured going into the game, but yeah, you don't realise until you, if you look at the team that were played that day now, it's like how the hell did we beat Chant with that team? You know, we had Leuvens and Ozturk, wasn't it? Centre half, right, we had yeah. Barley Mumba and Luke O'Nine centre midfield. Madger up front, who to that point hadn't really made any sort of impression in the first team. Mm-hmm. So it was like, uh, but the drama's unbelievable. The, the, the way they've put it together is fantastic, to be honest. That that game where you've got like Donald sat at half time, 1 0 down with his nerves shot to bits. You know, can't even focus or drink anything. He's that nervous. Then to go back out in the second half, Madger gets that goal to bring us level and then. The cross from Oviedo, sorry, comes into the box at the back post, and I think Donald screams something like, "That's that, that's the cross." And then you see Gooch meet the ball, put it in the back of the net. The whole place goes absolutely mental. You know, the relief, just the, you just sense the relief. It's it's brilliant the way they've put it together. Like what I think the people watching will pick up on, especially if you're not a Sunderland fan, is just how like gripping, <laughs> gripping it can be watching this team. Even if it, it doesn't matter that it's in League One, it's like. When you're a Sunland fan, you get used to that feeling of just being made to cling on. And occasionally, when you when it comes off and you win the game, it, it, there's nothing better. I remember that game like it was yesterday. It was it was amazing. It's uh, well, I mean, well, we're going back almost two years now, and and like mm. you said, it, it did. It feels like a like a bright new era was beginning, and and everything was uh, was gradually going to start to turn maybe a little bit and now we're going to swiftly move through the episodes and hopefully we'll get through episode two and episode three for the end of this first podcast so season two episode one it focused heavily on the new recruits all of the players coming in and it continues that theme for episode two we mentioned jack baldwin and maybe about the idea of that he didn't seem you know the right fit for sunderland and it kicks off basically with a scene of him and his wife and they've just moved into a brand new home and speaking specifically about you know the pressures and moving and, and obviously you know the, the footballer's lifestyle and and how her friends allude to the fact that she lives a life that she's kind of not convinced she's living that she looks at the other wives and girlfriends on instagram and how she aspires for that but they do seem mm. a very very nice down-to-earth couple in that respect they do uh, without sounding kind of funny about them but they're quite plain jane they're, they're not your typical yeah. football and family that you would expect are they like i said before i think he comes across quite quite normal and bit meek and quiet but yeah I mean it's it's some of the only personal sort of footage you get to see of any of the players isn't it it reminds a bit of the Jason Steele stuff from last year where you get seen with these kids in there yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned that it does seem that there is an awful lot of um, you know kind of similar bits and bobs from season one to season two in terms of the way the players go in terms of obviously the best striker leaves in the January so it's almost just kind of a, a carbon rewrite really isn't it in terms of some of the main mm. points um but this is a bit of a shorter episode. So episode one was, say, circa 40-odd minutes. Um, this is just literally over half an hour. Um, and it now begins to focus on just what Josh Madger brings to the team. Um, montage again, Fullwell 73 seemed to love to stitch them together. And it's just about him scoring goals. So it shows the highlights of us going down and winning at Gillingham. It shows uh, wins at home against some of those plodder teams that we began the season against, the likes of your Rochdales and, and teams like that. Um, there was an interesting scene what I found after the AFC Wimbledon game where Charlie Metvin's talking about the expectant 
discrepancy of what they would have had at the end of the week. And he alludes to saying if we took three points from those two games, he thought it would have been okay. If it was four points, it would have been you know, better than okay, but six points is, you know, a massive achievement and we'll we'll go back up north. And I, I just found that a bit of a funny thing, how the, the way he initially kind of presented that, because, I mean, the expectation that most, all of us had really was that, that we we're going to go to these places and, and absolutely steamroll them. Now, I know that Gillingham would be 4-1, Wimbledon okay. It was a bit of a closer tie in terms of Catamore winning it for us, but it was just interesting that it's, he raises the expectations so high in so many different episodes, but he was, you know, kind of downplaying a little bit and even suggested if we lost one of those games that, you know, we would have been okay with that. I wasn't sure about mm. your thoughts. Um, I guess early in the season, you 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 just find your feet on you and that's what we yeah. were doing at that point. So we knew the squad wasn't completed yet. There wasn't everybody back fit. Um, the first game probably posed more questions than it did answers. So, I can sort of understand because I don't think anybody knew how they would, they would follow on, especially when you consider that we were relying heavily on Madger, who'd never played. Maguire, who we'd heard a lot about, but we didn't know whether he was going to play a massive part or whether he was going to be a flop like he was at Bury. And to be fair, in those first few games, he sort of shone, didn't he? So I can sort of see where he was coming from. Like I don't think it's any sort of shock, really. Do you think- just going off subject a little bit in terms of obviously the the way the the opening stages of the season panned out. Do you think because of you know all of the injuries we had, uh, you know Charlie White was out, then when he came back he sustained a bad injury. Uh, Maguire was out, and like you mentioned about the the previous episode that we were beginning games with with Leuvens and Donald Love at right back. Do you think we overachieved mm. in terms of some of the earlier games because that really was you know a makeshift team. There was there was an awful yeah. lot of the new people weren't even getting in that side at the start. I think so, yeah. I think we we, we kind of struggled with Madger, didn't we? Because that could have went one well, or two ways, yeah. you know. Um, and had we had well, we not had, we didn't have another striker. I don't think, did we? Not really. No, nothing recognised on the books. I mean, we had Sinclair, but I mean, with all due respect to Sinclair, he offered absolutely nothing. Really, did he? he was yeah. kind of running around. He was maybe some one of the James Vaughan moulds that he. It was just all really kind of effort, but but nothing ever unfortunately came off. And um, since yeah. since he's left us, that's kind of carried on, hasn't it? So it wasn't just a Sunderland thing. He no, did absolutely. very little. Yeah, he did very little at Oxford, and I think he plays for Venlo with Catmull, doesn't he? And I don't right, think he's yeah. actually scored for them yet. So, well, I was going to mm. say, I think sometimes people mention about the Sunderland curse, the career trajectory that some of these players have had, the James Vaughans, um, you know, people like Sinclair, stuff like that. It's it's not really a surprise that we were saying that. Well, first and foremost, perhaps they weren't good enough for us, but the career path has also suggested that we were bang on and they've just had a bit of a slump ever since. But um, moving on, uh, like I said, obviously it does focus really heavily on Josh Madger now beginning to score the goals, um, the reinvigorate into the fan base in, in terms of how energised everybody is because we're just turning up and it's not the case of will we win, it's how many will we win by. Um, but in the background, there is still that element of uncertainty in terms of Stuart Donald, the way he's kind of painted across that when they bought the club, they weren't maybe given the full facts and the full figures because there was a, a pretty crucial scene where Stuart Donald, Richard Hill and Neil Fox are looking at the club's finances and the way, you know, they're, they're discussing the wage bill, they alluded to it in the first episode, it was £34 million in the championship season and, you know, they, they suggest already at the end of well, sorry, at the beginning of episode two that the, the club just it can't continue in that vein and we're really going to need to slash the costs. Yeah, so, I think that, that, that became, from, from their perspective, it sort of, everything became rather difficult because, like, obviously the, the content and we're bringing the wage bill down and basically having to find money within the playing budget to be able to then kick on. And you've got a player like Madja who 
could have been worth a lot more to the club than he ultimately was. So we we, we do end up seeing what, how much he was sold for and what have you. But um, in those early stages, he was becoming a, a, a real key player. Yeah. And they just they couldn't tie him down to a new deal. And you see that. You see, I mean, you, the one thing you don't see, and I noted this when I wrote about it last week, was that although you hear quite a lot from Donald, you hear a lot from uh, Richard Hill on Madger, you don't actually hear anything from Madger about his situation or Madger's agent. Yeah. I think it would have been interesting to... I know Madger, there is a, there is a, a scene, uh, I think, in the third episode where Madger won't really talk about his situation. He just doesn't want to really discuss it with the cameras, even though he's one-on-one with them. And then I kind of wish that maybe they could have sat down with his agent and yeah. interviewed him and heard from their perspective because all of the talk, really, that you get and the narrative you get is that Madger just... His his agent just wanted him to be moved on. Um, well, the 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 allude to his agent, you know, having a like a reputation, uh, basically across Europe of of shifting players. So yeah, it's something that we perhaps weren't aware of at that stage. We were all under the impression that you know he was going to commit to his future. They discussed lengthy deals, making mm. him one of the highest paid players at the club. But it's quite a concern when you think at just how early that you know. I suppose shit was really hitting the fan at such at such an early stage yeah. in the season. And when they're going I think, through, I think, sorry, I think Donald actually says himself, doesn't he? Um, if we sell Josh Madger, we're going to look like a bunch of idiots. They know what's yeah, coming. I, I think, yeah, yeah. But in terms of you know, kind of when when they're addressing the finances and things like that, you do get the feeling that the bit off perhaps more they can chew in terms of mm. the idea that I know it's not mentioned in this particular episode or across the documentary, but we were reliably told that there was people on the books who were essentially paid to go and rotate the plants and things like that. There was just so many kind of unnecessary members of staff there. Then they discussed the cryo chamber, which, I mean, if you remember rightly, going back to Sam Allardyce's time, Jermaine Defoe seemed to live in that thing. And then when they're discussing why they're paying £100,000 a year for it, then they discuss, right, well, which, which players go in there? And then when it's mentioned that none of them do, but Martin Bain used to go in there because he had a bad back. I mean, it's one of those things where as an outsider, you know, everybody's just going to take the piss out of that. And you think, how on earth does the football club manage to run in such a, a frightening state, especially when you cast your memory back to season one and Martin Bain was talking about, you know, wastage and kind of uh, saving money here, here, X, Y, and Z, and how Ella Short didn't want to put the, the finances in. But if you think if you've got an asset for a hundred grand a year like that, you, you've really got to, but you've just got to kind of curtail that and stop using it. Um, mm. So you, you do get the impression that, that at least from the early days, that it is going to be a major uphill battle because I, I know from earlier podcasts with us that they mentioned that they could they could finance everything, but early suggestions are that um, that's going to be a bit of a struggle. So yeah. they, they do swiftly move on um, and they do have a supporters club meeting with the Seaburn branch. Um, that's, that's in the Queen Vic down at Roger, which is, well... It's the Queen Vic, isn't it? I think everybody knows what it's like who's been in the Queen Vic. It's uh, it's an interesting place. So it's uh, it's like a fans a fans session where people are putting the questions towards Charlie, and again he's he's in full PR mode and he, he's explaining the state of the club to the fans um, and basically how it's a new direction. We want to try and improve things, improve the culture, and how in the past basically we've just had the mentality where nobody's concerned about the finances and we just pass it off to a bloke in Florida and he writes the check. I mean, if you think that was was left to continue, he mentions in episode one that we were the first big club to potentially go bust. Do you think there's any truth in that? Yeah, totally. Because 
really Ellis wasn't managing the club day to day. He was employing somebody to do that for him. Um, and the club was running at a massive loss. So every month it was losing money. You know, the revenues, uh, the the, in, the incoming um, money, was it wasn't obviously enough to bridge the losses the club were making and Ellis was having to fill the gap. So um, when Charlie says that we were quite literally asking a man in America to write checks, we were, because had he not done that, the club would have went under because it wouldn't have been able to pay its bills. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just a point as well, um, they do mention at the start of episode one about the interest payments that essentially all of our ticket revenue was was basically covering £7 million of interest. And you think, well, yeah, that decision yeah. makers like this at the top of the football club, it really is no coincidence that we've, well, we haven't just fallen. I mean, we've, we've literally <clears> dropped two divisions in a heartbeat, haven't we? So it's... Um, it's, 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 it's To be fair, as a fan, it, it, it's quite... It, I mean, it hurts a little bit thinking that all all that money put in basically put into the club by fans. That's I mean, that's the main source of income from fans, isn't it? The ticket revenue, yeah. season tickets, and match day tickets. People committing their futures, well, committing their, a lot a lot of money to go and support the team and thinking it's going into to help the club. It was actually going to pay off a debt. Uh, well, in, yeah. not even not even pay off a debt, pay off interest on a debt. I was going to say so, we weren't even scratching you know, the surface, were we? So it's. Yeah. Um, it's a good point that he does come across um, Charlie Methon here when he is discussing it with the fans, and he, he mentions the idea about basically our money, you know, contributing. Therefore, it feels like our club because in the past, when Ellis is, you know, just writing checks, it didn't feel like our football club, and it did kind of cast my memory back to this, the start of last season when the feel good factor was back. It felt like a different football club in terms of when you go back to you know David Moyes being in charge and even Simon Grayson. It just you would turn up at the stadium of light, and it just it didn't feel like home anymore. And I, I think that in terms of when he was delivering his PR messages, he, he really, really did strike, you know, a chord with a lot of fans and, and everyone seemed to be on the same page. So I think... Well, um, I think We, we were all drinking make... the Kool-Aid, weren't we? We were all drinking oh, yeah. the Kool-Aid at one stage, I think. Those meeting, those those first, I don't know, when did they come in like me? Those first six, seven months where they were going around all the supporter groups and doing talking, doing all the podcast. I mean, we all loved, we, we did. We all we all loved it because we were getting a level of access to the club that we'd never had before. And that was a yeah. key driver for these owners. They wanted, and they mentioned it in the first episode, they want to, you know, be, be a club who is the most engaging club in the country in terms of letting fans know what's going on. I mean, ultimately that, they, they did a whole, a, a complete 180 on that. And now we get no engagement and no sort of um, insight to what's going on but um, it is interesting to see how it all unfolds I mean those talks with Charlie early days I mean you have to remember on social media I was like oh who, who was at the talking last night what was said and they, all, they would let little things slip which the fans would love you know I mean even even in those around transfer windows and stuff um, Stuart was on Twitter and replying to people and I mean it become commonplace didn't it you kind of forget it wasn't even that long ago really um, that we were sort of, if you had a question, you could put it to the owner, and he would at least answer it um, from his perspective. And then that 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 was the same with these talkings and stuff. And you, you at the end of that uh, little scene where he's talking to all the fans, you know, all the people that the the, the full world cameras interview, they sort of seem completely convinced, don't they, um, yeah. by what he's saying, and you know, they kind of feel confident that these are the right people to be running the club. Do you think in terms of 
like you said, obviously because of the level of access they were giving everybody in terms of you were right. If you heard a rumor, you could ask him on Twitter and he would just, you know, completely shut it down straight away. Do you think there was just an element of we were just happy to hear, you know, what we wanted to hear? Um, yeah, maybe there was things things that we were overlooking because you know there, there has been critics of them from the offset there was people who were questioning how the football club was bought and things like that um, and that's one thing I would have been interested to see perhaps if they did target those people because there was a lot of loud voices on on social media from the offset saying didn't trust these blokes you know they weren't particularly keen on them so I thought that might have been a narrative that they might have attempted to go towards because although they did have a lot of people buying into what they were saying. You know, they had people approaching them on match day, buying them pints, taking photos and things like that. Not everybody was singing from the same hymn sheet. So it would have been interesting perhaps if they maybe approached those people and, and maybe got their, I don't know, their take and, and, and yeah. their, their challenge, if you like. <clears throat> well, when I spoke to the guys from Fulwell last week, um, Leo and Ben, the, I, I asked, specifically asked about the owners and said, you know, how how did you feel about the way they came across and what they were like to work with? They couldn't speak highly enough of them. They absolutely, you know, sang their praises. Um, and I, you get that feeling. How I, I, In hindsight, now I've watched it all and then I've spoke to them about how they feel about the owners. I don't feel like they wanted to throw them under the bus, basically. I just yeah. think, they, they, I mean, a lot of fans in their position would have. They would have probably, I mean, there's there's a couple of, Incidents, and I'm sure we'll get onto it when we talk about episode three. There's something in particular which I think um, might stand out when it comes to Charlie. But um, yeah, the producers of the show didn't really seem um, seem like the type of lads who want to want to basically throw the throw the guys under the bus. And the um, yeah, they come across pretty well, I think. Um, and I think you're right. It would have been good to hear from people who were dissenting voices at the time, just to get a different perspective because you do sort of. Although it's not club propaganda, I would never go that far and say that because it definitely isn't. Yeah. Um, you do. It does feel a little bit one-sided. It feels like it's all mm-hmm. like we're trying our best to do this. And the only time you really hear anything about negative fans is towards the end of the series. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I think even in those early days, there were people who weren't convinced. Well, I, I mean, I'll be honest. I was one of those where I felt I was kind of like led down the path and I bought in absolutely everything that was said. And then it was when things began to unravel that, you know, you take the step back, you have a look at the bigger picture. And we've discussed this many times. It's, it's fine for people to change their opinions. It's fine for people to have different opinions, but, you know, just kind of approaching it in a civil manner. And, and I would say perhaps not the most original observation, but Stuart Donald, when he is on screen and he, when he is away from Charlie, he does seem like a genuinely stand-up bloke the way he comes across. And when he's... Um, you know, he, he's at home, he's playing football with his kids he, and he's, he's basically discussing, you know, how it's kind of like a dream to be associated with Sunderland. It's his, it's his one massive shot. He, he, he does seem incredibly invested. And I mean, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying he, he seems like a proper football man, but it, you get you get the the opinion, perhaps it's it's like he's won the lottery. Um, yeah, the way, it feels the like... Way, Sorry, he feels like he's in over his head a little bit. Yeah, that's that's what I that's the feeling that I get all the way through. Um, comes across as a completely likable bloke, which to be fair, every time I've dealt with him, he's he's came yeah, across he's, that way. He's been okay. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say he's been particularly dishonest. I think he's always came across as quite humble and, and decent, and he does in this. Um, but you you get the impression he's in over his head, and comments yeah. like that, like when he says, "This is my one shot at having a club at, like Sunderland." Um, you know, even he knows he knows he might be in over his head a little bit. 
Yeah, I mean, not doing any sort of disservice to uh, to Oxford, but there is actually a clip when they're kind of having a nostalgic look back at some of his earlier times, and he's describing going to the match with his dad and about the smell of like cigarettes and burgers on the terraces and things like that. Yeah. And it does come off a little bit small time. Um, and like I said, that's not to do any disservice to Oxford because, you know, at the moment we're in the same division as them. But I think realistically speaking, and you kind of look at everybody who was associated with the club in the end in terms of all the employees that will come across, we really needed somebody who was perhaps more appropriate for the role, maybe somebody who had experience working in top clubs. I mean, granted, that's yeah. not a suggestion would, you know, have delivered any any better success in the end. But yeah, I, I mean, I think a, well, a few people have used words like chances and things like that. And I, I think sometimes that really is highlighted as on this particular episode. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it comes across quite a lot in this is that whenever Donald's sort of sitting down and discussing things to do with the club, he's he's taking advice from people who really are beneath him. You know yeah. what I mean? So, I mean, Richard Hill features quite a lot. Neil Fox features quite a lot. I mean, they aren't, no, I don't know those two guys personally, but um, they seem to be given a lot of advice to Stuart Donald that he acts upon, um, particularly with Madger, as you see in this episode. So obviously Madger's still not signed his contract. Hill's the one talking to the agent, um, and he's sort of pushing his agenda towards Donald when it comes to Madger, and he talks about maybe handing an ultimatum to the agent that he needs to sign his contract or we're going to look elsewhere. And when I was watching that, I was I was cringing a little bit. I was like, well, I wish I know because we know we know how it turned out. And yeah. I think if maybe Stuart had bowed to the agent maybe a little more and paid Madja a little more than he was maybe worth, would have been better off for it instead of instead of being stubborn about it, which was definitely an attitude I was feeling from Hill rather than than Donald. Because as you see, as the series kicks on, Stuart's not adverse to making rash decisions when yeah. it comes to players. And including Simon Grigg, so I think had he been left to his own devices, he might have he might have just bowed to the pressure a little bit and um and and gave Madger what he was worth because when Hill talks, you get the you certainly get the impression he's not impressed by his representatives and he doesn't really want to deal with them. I think he seems a bit old school because the way he came across, I still couldn't quite fathom out what his role really is and what he does with Sunderland. I know he has a title, don't get me wrong, but. Stuart Donald appeared on Total Sport after you know the fan fallout, and he mentioned that Richard Hill had so-called saved the club, and you don't really get any sort of suggestions that he had such a large part, apart from you know chipping in with bits of advice. Now I'm not sure whether that was perhaps a throwaway quote from from Stuart Donald. Perhaps time will tell, but it doesn't really look like he offers much. And, and like you mentioned, in terms of the stubbornness, mm. you know. The idea of this fella perhaps being able to speak to a young kid, try and convince him, and I know there's mentions of speaking to Josh Madger's mum and dad and things like that, but it just seems like they really approach this the the wrong way. And and like you said, yeah. if you've got a player who's adding so much value to to your end goal, which is get promoted, you think, look, yeah, it might cost an extra couple of quid now, but in the long run, we should really reap the rewards because. I mean, even if that deal went to a tribunal at the end of the season, you're still looking at perhaps some money, um, but. As time moves on and we discuss the actual value, I think a lot of people is going to be going to be disappointed. Um, like I said, just just the episode two itself is is quite a short one. You do see highlights of goals and things like that. Uh, you see our first appearance, Roker Report's first appearance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with Stuart Donald speaking with Connor, and he touches again on on the mess that he's inherited, which we've already kind of touched on earlier in the episode. Um, and it does 
finish a, a little bit with Luke O'Nine, um, talking again about how valuable Josh Madger is and how much he helps him on the day-to-day basis, how much he's loving life at Sunderland and obviously his first goal. So it's quite a nice, nice end of the episode that it shows, you know, basically he's back on track and his, and his Sunderland career is beginning to gradually work out. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously we all know how it's worked out for Luke O'Nine, but he obviously... I don't think we realise how tough he'd found it when he first came. He, he talks about that, doesn't he? He talks yeah. about how he sort of came and didn't realise just how hard he'd have to work to f- figure out the manager's plans, really. And that's exactly what he did. He, you know, I don't remember it as clear as day. You know, he, he played where he was told to play and he'd done a job and kept himself in the team. Then that, that's why he's still playing now and making an impression. Um, but I didn't realise actually how difficult he'd found it mentally and Obviously, moving you, you you sort of think about it, young lad moving all the way from down south up to the top of the country. Mm-hmm. I think he came with his girlfriend, but obviously away from his family and just having to adjust to everything. Moving from a club like Wickham, who are basically a non-league club, with no disrespect to them, but they are. I mean, in terms of facilities and infrastructure and stuff, they're, they're basically a non-league, you know, standard club. Yeah, who are performing quite well in League One, coming all that way up to Sunderland to. Then basically play at a club which with a Premier League infrastructure is is a big adjustment. So yeah, it was it was. I mean, I'm over the moon. It's worked out for him. Oh, absolutely. And I think um, he mentions. I think he's, perhaps he was maybe in awe in terms of, of some of the people that he was dealing with. With Aidan McGeady yeah. discusses his transfer value. Brian Oviedo, the World Cup. Um, but thankfully, as we know, you know, all went to plan eventually with Luke Nine and well, hopefully, once all said and done with. This global pandemic will uh, will time down to a longer contract. So Absolutely. episode two and episode three really just kind of roll into one <clears throat> in the end. So episode two finishes on Josh Madger basically not talking about his contract situation. I mean, he is he's actually asked, he's quizzed by the camera people, um, you know, about his situation, and he's just basically saying it's all on hand, and that's kind of it. You're kind of yeah. starting to get the doubts already. So if you think from a neutral, um, you know, whether he's going to sign. I mean, granted, we were all oblivious to this, but watching it unfold, it's uh, it's heartbreaking. I just think basically how how much of an asset we're eventually going to lose. So episode three, um, that basically kicks off with something completely different. It's it's Remembrance Day. Um, now, one of the fans who is heavily featured, you'll have to forgive me, I can't remember his name. It's uh, no, Camus, I can't Mark Camus, I think his, his name was. I'm not but, sure. Um, he's, in, he's in the first series as well. Isn't yeah. he? I forget his name, yeah. So you'll you'll see an awful lot of him again. Um, it basically picks up from him, and he's he's still going to match with uh, with his kids. Um, but it it actually unfolds to say that he was he was a former soldier. His partner was as well. Um, and they've got a lovely bit about basically how um how how you know they met and and they got married. So it's uh, it's a bit of a strange narrative to start on, especially after the way episode two basically ends with Josh Madge's situation. Um, so once that, it's, moves that re- on, it's that realism, isn't it? It's that um, yeah. Bringing it, bringing it back down to earth and out of the world of football and like what the club means to normal people. Yeah, and he he's like, he's his house is decked out in red and white. He's an, he's never got a Sunderland shirt off. Um, absolutely obsessed with Sunderland, and he's, yeah. he's a typical Sunderland fan, really. Um, yeah. But we all have, we all have our own backgrounds and the way things have gone in life and that. And it's interesting to hear his little story about how he was in the armed forces because you don't actually learn that in the first series at all do so no yeah no there's not even a hint to us so it's um, no. like i said it's, it's nice to learn a little bit more about some of these characters i mean we know that um that there's more appearances from from peter the station taxi's driver so it's nice to see some of the old faces perhaps 
what would have been better is if the season was maybe fleshed out in the in the eight episodes because it does feel a bit compact as it goes along. Um, yeah. So it basically begins yet again on on a bit of a montage of, of Sunderland just you know steamrolling teams away again at the Stadium of Light. It focuses heavily again on the Josh Magic contract situation. Um, one of the interesting bits is they're doing the Christmas light switch on over at Keel Square, and uh, and a fan basically asks. You know, will you be here next year to do the Christmas light switch on? And um, I'm pretty certain he promises 100% that he'll be there for the for the next year, but he's not very convincing yeah. in the ways delivering his message. Do you, no. do you think his mind was made up then already? Yeah, I think so. I think he'd already made his mind up, or at least he's, he, he's, people around him had made his mind up for him. It's like I say when we were talking earlier about Jack, when Jack Ross introduces himself to him and the sorrow. Um, you do get your, I don't know why, you just get the feeling they're a little bit big time. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, like they don't sort. Yeah, they don't. They don't sort of. Sunderland's not the be all and end all. It's just a. It's just another step on the way to where they're, they're headed, and that's yeah. fair enough. I mean, that happens at every club, uh, unless you're Manchester City or Liverpool. You know what I mean? <clears throat> every club is a stepping stepping stone to something greater. It's just the way things work out, um, and it's sad because you get so invested in these players as a fan and you just want to see them play for your club. You want, you want nothing more than people like Josh Madgett to stay at Sunderland for years on end and score goals and be part of a, a bigger a bigger thing, taking us through the leagues as, as he improves. But the problem is, well, I think the sad thing, thing is... Could, and we could, Go on, sorry. Sorry, go on. We'll go on. We'll edit this bit, on. We'll edit this bit. <laughs> uh, what I was going to say is, is that um, one thing you don't want to see as a fan is players leave your club, but it's just part and parcel of where we are right now. And Madja, leave, Madja was always going to leave, whether it was in January or the summer, he was always going to yeah. leave unless we threw money at him to stay. And then even then, there's no guarantee he would have stayed really, is there? Because a club could have come in, he could have finished the season on 26, 27 goals and a club might have paid a little bit more for him. And, and as a fan, you don't really care about money. You just want to see good players play for your team and stay. So well, I can totally sympathise with, with whoever it was who was worried about him staying because we all felt the same. I mean, that's one of the things that dominates the whole, the whole conversation in um, throughout the early episodes is the talk shows and the podcasts and stuff all talking about mad jets. All we, if you remember back at that time, it's all we talked about. All, every, yeah. all anyone cared about at the time was, is he going to stay? Um, and when he did leave, it was, it was thoroughly disappointing because we just didn't replace him properly. Yeah. And um, it's funny you mentioned that because I remember when we, we had, the access and we, we had an awful lot of podcasts running pretty much with just about every member of the club at the time you would guarantee you would put questions out and it would always be about the contract situation which obviously in episode two is discussed um and it continues pretty much again through throughout the entire show really um jack ross talks about the risk of losing josh madger and, and potentially you know kind of preparing for the rest of the season without him but it seems to you know, completely changed direction the episode then. Um Charlie Methven then is the, the focus again as we begin to prepare for the Boxing Day game. So they're discussing about the attendances and they're discussing about Leeds United having the League One attendance record, which I think at the time was around about thirty eight thousand and basically yeah. how we want to break a record. And they actually begin to discuss the value of the game um in terms of how much money you could potentially bring in. And Something that you would perhaps take for granted, perhaps in the Premier League, when we had routine crowds of you know in excess of forty thousand. But when you do drop down to League One, naturally any any additional revenue that you can get it, it plays a massive part because the suggestions when they used to come on our podcast and obviously mentioned here is you know that could be a difference of bringing in an extra player. So mm. what is interesting 
And I think what everybody is going to certainly question is the meeting with the club staff. They basically have a presentation about, you know, kind of changing the culture and the part that everybody's got to play. And he routinely uses the word renaissance. Um, but there's a member of staff who makes our first appearance, our first notable appearance, um, called Sophie Ashcroft. Now, I'll be honest, I'd never seen her before. I wasn't aware of who she was. She no, didn't, appear, didn't appear in the first season of the documentary, so I'm not sure whether she was new. Um, so she's interviewed, and you can maybe see a bit of a conflict already that she's not overly keen. Um, she didn't particularly like his methods of delivery of the way that he... He tried to hammer home points and yeah. it just seemed an awful lot of the, the, uh, the, the response by staff was just, well, it's just Charlie being Charlie. Um, I just found it a bit interesting with that one because if you work maybe in a, well, it could be Asda Tesco or a call centre environment, if you have maybe issues with your staff or anything like that, it's usually dealt with by HR. So I thought it was very interesting to see her actually, you know, first and foremost, be prepared to open up and address her particular grievances that she had with Charlie about his, yeah. his delivery. But um, I, I wasn't sure what, what, what was your thoughts on uh, on her in, initial kind of appearance on, on this episode. She clearly thinks he's a dickhead. Like, it's just, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's just all that comes across. She's, she's trying her best not to say he's an arsehole. Um, you can just tell that they don't get on at all. There's a, there's a clip when he's given that big meeting and it kind of the camera pans to her and she just rolls her eyes at him. Um, yeah. She isn't convinced at all. And then a little bit later in the episode, there's another meeting where, um, actually, no, it might be the same meeting where he, he uses some Brexit terminology, doesn't he? I believe so, yes. Yeah. Better, stronger together or whatever it was. Yeah. And as soon as he mentions the word Brexit, she just rolls her eyes and sort of sniggers. And um, the new, I mean, obviously, there's, like I say, there's a narrative throughout this and they've got to, they've got to sort of put, put a story together. So, you know, it could have just been a bit of stock footage I don't know but she, yeah, she doesn't seem convinced at all by Charlie as you get to learn more as the episode kicks on really they don't see eye to eye at all um, would, would it be fair to question whether any of this is potentially staged in terms of whether this is set up I'm not sure in terms of Sophie's relationship with, with Charlie or anybody else at the club but like I said I found it incredibly interesting that you know they're, they're just allowed this to, to unfold this this sort of relationship she certainly wasn't afraid to speak up and you think ordinarily um you know like i said if you've got an issue if wherever in your workplace yeah. if you kind of discuss that if you put it on social media as you've said i think your boss is a dick or anything like that i mean that's mm -hmm. going to go down as gross misconduct so it was the first time after watching this for, for basically for, for two seasons now where i've thought I'm not sure whether this is all 100% truth telling. Um, I, I, I don't know because you, what you've got to think is we've, we've already talked about how it, it's a little bit condensed. This and if yeah, if you note the episode ends um, after the Boxing Day game, but it starts in November, early November. Yeah. So you're talking about footage. I mean, they they were there every single day in Black Cat's house. They had cameras yeah. there every single day. So I mean, if they were trying to put a story together, they were going to find bits of footage that fit it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be. I no. I think. I think that she definitely didn't. Didn't get on with them. And, yeah. Um. I didn't really. I mean, like you say, I've never really heard of her. But but there's another meeting later in the episode where it's just key staff. You know, you've got um Louise Wanless there and Tony Davison etc. And she's there. So I'm not sure what her role was at the club, but she was obviously important enough to yeah. be in those meetings. She must have been high up. One yeah. of the, the the interesting comments I found from her was when they're kind of challenging the the attendance and, and 
if you remember when they'd done the gift for Christmas and things like that, the, the, the marketing campaign, I'll give credit to both Charlie and Stuart and everybody else involved was was incredible. If you think they get 46,000 there on a Boxing Day, regardless of whether it's mm. exiles coming home, to have that attendance for a League One football game against Bradford is absolutely incredible. But one yeah. of the interesting things I found was she dismissed that entirely and she was like, it's impossible, it can't be done. And I think that was just the suggestion of like 38,000 when yeah. he was saying we need to beat Leeds and the mention of 40,000, she just said out of hand, it couldn't happen, it was impossible. So... It was just a, an interesting key part from her, especially after so early in the season where, you know, Charlie Methvin's mentioned about you can be part of, you know, re-energising the fan base and basically going out there and going the extra mile because there is a, a massive suggestion here that um, that Charlie's just not happy with people's contributions, especially in Black Hat's yeah. house. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, then, the, the, there's a meeting, isn't there, between yeah. uh, Stuart, Charlie and Tony Davison where they're just sitting moaning on about the lack of self-motivation the staff have and... You do get that impression, actually. There's a you do when 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 Charlie's asking people. There's a that big team meeting at the start of the episode. He asks, "Has anybody got any questions or plans for the future?" And nobody shouts up. And he says, "Oh, I should have put some plants in the crowd, shouldn't I?" You know, he's <laughs> waiting. He's waiting for people to get involved. Yeah. In the, he doesn't. He doesn't want people who just sit there and nod. Um, and the, and obviously it happens again later in in the episode when he's he's showing them how ticket sales are progressing, and he he makes a pretty strong statement I feel when he says like I need you to, to to come up with ideas and I need you to to be able to motivate yourselves because if we don't get from and he points at the board and it's like 38,000 yeah. to 40 whatever they want to get to if we don't make that jump it could be the difference of a couple of jobs or you know cost cutting measures would have to, the more money we make basically the more jobs we save which is a hard it's a harsh way of putting it across you're basically telling people that you know if you don't if you don't run yourself at the ground and make a success of this opportunity, like you could be responsible for a couple of jobs being, you know, taken away within the club. Yeah. Um, it's a strong way of getting your message across, but he, I sort of see the point he's driving at. Yeah. Um, but I mean, she, she's definitely part of that group of people who don't seem particularly self-motivated. And yeah. Yeah. You can see why they clash. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think, I mean without doing any disservice to, to any of the staff in Black Cat's house, if you've ever been in the, the ticket office or anything like that. I mean, it's the same faces and they've been there for an absolute eternity now, some of them. And I'm not sure whether they've just got a bit of, you know, sort of comfortability about them, that their feet is well and truly firmly under the table. And even after so many kind of, um, you know, stages of redundancy, they just feel that their jobs are 100% safe because you're still going to need someone to sell the tickets or you're still going to need mm. somebody to be, you know, front of house staff. So, it was really, really interesting with that one. But yeah, the vibe you do get, and they actually do mention it, don't they, about the staff. They don't even stay at five o'clock. They're all clocking off at 4.59. And I just thought, you know, with that sort of culture, how long has that been going on for? Um, but again, that this was all kind of there, the time when they were talking about merging the club shop and having that in the Black Cat's house and having this big sort of retail empire, which in fairness is still a really good idea. But I think it's the first time where I really did agree with Charlie and think, you know mm. what, this this really does need to improve because when it does, and you know they did achieve the overall goal of getting over forty six thousand in attendance. I mean, it just it does go to show that if you if you put the extra mile in, that that obviously the outcome is it's like you said, it's going to potentially save jobs, and especially with um, with how risky it was with with everybody concerned about the finances. Um, one thing I'd like to mention, and I know it's not discussed at all. Um, is that the club did obviously approach us, they approached Wiseman Say, they approached ALS multiple times to help obviously with um with you know the the ticket drive. 
they didn't mention anything about you know kind of the the gift of Christmas, which I thought would have been nice to at least yeah, give someone back that. because yeah. Yeah. The, the Sunderland fans were, have been routinely criticised through episode one, and uh, sorry through season one, should I say, in terms of when you know there was an awful lot of booze, there was focusing on them swearing, it made them seem like they were you know scumbags in truth. But all of a sudden, I think we shifted twelve hundred tickets or so before Christmas, and we're just donating to the to those people who are lesser off. And I think that was a notable yeah. omission. So I, I was I was a little bit unhappy that, that that never got picked up. It would have been it would have been good to say that after all of the shit that we've been served up, that you know we're, we're still looking out for one another really. And it's yeah. the whole thing that they say about their you know one club our club that really without the fans they'd be absolutely up shit creek. So it was a shame that they missed that one. But they do show footage of Jack Ross doing house visits. They show footage of Luke O'Nine going around to schools and giving tickets away. So they at least do show that sort of, uh, you know, the nice community element again. And it, it does show that that we are re-energising with, obviously, with the club and the, the, the fan base are back on side. Um, it does kind of lean back into the match narrative a little bit um, that basically Stuart Donald learns from Sky Sports News that Josh Madge wants to leave. Now, I'm not sure if that was just an interesting bit of editing because from what I remember, it seemed like that was all in January. Um, I remember Keith Downey mm. kind of revealed a few bits and bobs um, and then we had a bit of an altercation with him on social media then then he appeared on the podcast to kind of say what he knew um, but I, I wasn't sure on your thoughts about that one where I thought the timing was a little bit off um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not entirely sure I remember I can remember the the Magic News coming out on Sky Sports News and I, I think I remember Donald tweeting about it didn't he yeah he tweeted that he'd only found out after it had appeared on the TV mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it was strange. I mean, obviously, there was clearly a disconnect there with Josh Madger. Um, and yeah, as much as I wanted him to stay and I wanted the, the, the club to pay him his worth, it does feel, and I, it is one-sided, like I said before, it is one-sided. You don't hear really anything from him. You don't hear anything from his representatives, but it feels like we were being played a little bit and that we're in a difficult situation whereby he was scoring for fun. So you weren't going to take him out the team. You weren't going to limit these opportunities. But at the same time, we were becoming so reliant on him that when he did leave, it made us look like mugs. Yeah. That's one thing Donald projects. He knows that's coming. Yeah. And I think, as you mentioned, it was a bit of a shame that we never got their take on the story because we got an appearance from Lewis Graben in season one after he left. Grinning mm-hmm. like a Cheshire cat after he was saying how good it felt to score against us fast in Villa. There was also a brief appearance of Jack Rodwell in episode one of season two after he left, saying that you know he didn't, like, he didn't need to you know say anything to anyone. So it would have been interesting if we at least got their narrative after they left. But um, yeah. you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing, I guess. And uh, well, we'll just have to move on from that. Um, so the focus on Boxing Day itself it, it highlights basically what a massive day it was. All of the activities that was going on in the Beacon, another clash between Charlie Methven and Sophie. Uh, the yeah. beer, the beer scene. So basically, <laughs> he asks, he's getting photographs with fans, and he's interacting. Basically, Charlie doing what Charlie does best, uh, mingling with people. Everybody telling him he's doing a good job. So it's it's really inflating his ego. But he then asks Sophie to go get him a beer, and she looks rightfully pissed off about that. I wasn't sure about your take because I'll be honest, I just kind of looked at that as if I've ever been at work and somebody said, "Craig, can you grab us a coffee or grab us a cup of tea or something out the vending machine?" I've just always done it. Now I wasn't sure about yeah. what your take was. It seemed like she was she was really cheesed off with that. Um, well, I think because she doesn't like him clearly, 
she was like running around for him and mm-hmm. she makes some sort of she put the cameras follow her the whole time so yeah I don't know whether she's keeping up appearances as well but she says something like the things I have to do for this man yeah it was interesting because we don't yeah, actually yeah. find out exactly what her role entailed I mean whether she was anybody's sort church of is not his PA though. assistant <laughs> no I was, yeah. I was literally just mentioned yeah I don't think she was but yeah it was just a bit of an interesting one that um, you know that they, they kind of paint Charlie in this particular light how he's supposed to be good with people but by god they do an half clash and it really hits a boiling point at half time so we know that the crowd is going to be in excess of forty six thousand. but what's interesting is, is sophie mess- uh, basically passes the message across to suggest that we're not going to be able to get the attendance figure or at least the actual attendance figure and that's yeah. where he really does give her a dressing down a pitch size um, well she she kind of dances around it at first and then yeah she says if we get it we'll get if we get it we'll get it and that pisses him off and he's like no and goes into a full rant at her yeah. about how he's not a big corporation, he doesn't need to be pissed around, just fucking get it, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it, it's quite difficult to watch, isn't it? It's like, it is, yeah. yeah I think but, that's, that's one of the things he'll be remembered for off the back of the series is the way he talks to her. Mm-hmm. Now, I kind of had two different versions of when I watched that back. The first time I watched it, I thought, Jesus Christ, you know, the way he's speaking to her here, it had the kind of flashback to like when David Moyes was suggesting he was going to slap that woman reporter and stuff like <laughs> that. And I'm thinking this is not going to come out well because of, well, it's 2020 now. You've got to be careful about what you say to everybody. Um, we've, yeah. we've all got to be mindful of things like that. But on the flip side, I thought, you know, I, I'm 31 now. I've had a season ticket literally for, God knows, 27, 28 years. I know that you're in the same boat. Between us, we've got well over 50 years combined of support and Southern Football Club. Have mm. you ever been to a game where they've never reported an attendance or has there been any sort of, you know, kind of impressions that they've at least struggled to give the figures? Because I just found that bizarre to suggest that they couldn't record the numbers. They've, they've all got it on the screens. The camera clearly pans that a few yeah. times. I just thought, what is the issue that she can't actually report those figures? Get in touch with the ticket office. I, I found yeah. that weird. I found it really, really strange. Well, I think it, it, it's a bit of that. And it's um, obviously it's something... Charlie's really passionate about and they've worked hard yeah. to get that many people through the gate so he wants to be able to tell people we've brought this record and maybe take a bit of the limelight himself as well but oh, yeah. I mean he, to be fair he'd worked for it and he it, it was it was him that drove the campaign um, to get people to the game really you know it was it was Charlie's it was all Charlie's ideas to his staff that sort of you know the whole social media thing and what have you so yeah, he wanted he wanted to be able to give that news to people at half time, and when he when when she said that, I think his just passion boiled over a little bit. And yeah. I'm with I'm with you. The first time I watched it, I kind of watched it through my fingers. I thought it was like, yeah. oh my god. But then I've seen it a couple of times back now afterwards, and I, I think maybe he's just it's just a bit of passion, yeah, um, spilling over because he wants he, he wants to be able to give that information to people. So. Absolutely. I, um, I would say on her defence, yeah. give her a little bit of credit. You know, it seemed that she wasn't afraid to challenge him. There was the whole, I get that, I get that. So, yeah, you know, yeah. give, give her that credit. Um, I wonder I, mean, I wonder I, how often they, I wonder, I mean, not, not expecting it too much, but I wonder how often they clashed away from the cameras as well, you know. You would imagine. It's clearly a little bit of history. Yeah, it's yeah. clearly a little bit of history there. Hey, who knows? Like I said about the whole stage routine, they could have very much been our, uh, you know, Jim and Pam from the office. They might be best friends away from from the whole program, which I highly doubt. Nah, but, uh, I don't get that impression. No, nah. I was going to say there's there's definitely some friction there. Um, just wrapping this one up, the game obviously ends with with Sunderland winning. Thankfully, one 0 due to Aidan McGeady's goal. 
One thing I forgot was the incident where I cannot remember for the life of me which Bradford player had the shot. But when, I mean, it, it evidently crossed the line when John McLaughlin fumbled that ball. Yeah. And then they're really focused on that. And I can't remember the game back so much in real time because it was the Christmas period. It was Boxing Day. I had a bit of drink. But it seemed like they focused on that an awful lot as if the referee had kind of had a good thing about us. But everybody in the... Everybody in the ground thought it was over the line. If yeah. I remember rightly. If memory served, I just remember it just seemed like the game just kind of got on with it straight away. I don't remember the delay, but I'm not sure if that's then just adding no, to the was, spectacle of the episode. There was No, there was definitely a delay, I remember it, because everybody had seen it cross the line. Yeah. I remember their, their players and manager going absolutely mental. Yeah. Um, the referee going over at the assistant and then them deciding that it wasn't a goal, but it definitely was. We, yeah. we got away with one there. I think maybe oh, the big crowd better. played its part. Definitely, yeah. Um, I mean, where I'm sat in the southwest corner, I think where you're sat as well, you're probably more behind the goal and at the side of us. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was clear as day over the line. And thankfully, uh, VAR doesn't pay pay obviously any uh, any attention to League One games. <laughs> now, yeah. the last scene is the most interesting scene. Now, I'll be honest, again, it's all about speculation. But what happens is Sunderland have won, we've broke the attendance record. Charlie is doing what Charlie does best. He's set out as, as targets. We've, we've smashed that and Sophie Ashcroft is then seen leaving the club. She's got a box yeah. in her hand. Now, I don't know whether she's been dismissed, whether she's been sacked, whether she's resigned or anything like that, but it's a very, very interesting end to the episode. You've yeah. got staff outside, be, meeting her in the car park, well, giving her a hug. Yeah. I'd be Something that's definitely happened. I'd be interested to find out if she left as close to the game as it, yeah. as it appears. And I doubt she did. I don't know, I've got a feeling maybe it was a it wasn't as close to boxing day that should but yeah, she the show I leaving the club with a with a box in her hand. So Well it's, um, it's worth just repointing out that the football club had absolutely no editorial control over it. This was fully down to full full well seventy three, this was fully down to yeah. Netflix. So I suppose whatever story they wanted to spin, now I'm not suggesting they have spinned one here, but they could really have carte blanche over whatever they wanted done. And the way I read that the first time I watched it, I thought she's lost her job because of maybe their altercations. And like I said, that's going to be open for, for anybody's interpretation. It'll be interesting for, for every, all the listeners, really. Um, once you've watched this back, when it goes live next week, send us a tweet or send us a message on Facebook, whatever you. Let's get your impression of how it's all unfolded because the way I've seen that is it looks like she's been sacked. But like I said, I think that's clever editing because the mention of redundancies and things like that, that could have been stock footage from from months down the line or, or yeah who knows but um probably a good time to wrap it up because we've been that on for a little while so that is your spoiler special review of sun until i die season two episodes one to three we'll be back with the with the rest of the episodes go through them and pick out our moments and what the thoughts stood out spot on absolutely uh right so that's enough from us we will probably go back to watch episode four to six again for the christ knows oh. how many times uh to stay up to date the depressing the depressing oh. the depressing stage yeah yeah just it doesn't get any better. No, I was going to say, we've still got a January transfer day to get through and we've still got two Wembley defeats to focus on. So um, I'm sure that's going to be fun. So maybe maybe you don't want to listen at four to six. Uh, but as always, <laughs> to stay up to date with the latest Roker Report podcasts, you can subscribe on Apple, Acast, Spotify, and the very few who listen to us on YouTube. Uh, I've been Craig. We've had Gav on the line. Thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 